Are you a Christian who wants to go deeper into the roots of your faith? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Grafted, Jewish Roots of Christianity. This is a podcast for Christians who want to understand the Jewishness of Jesus and his word. I'm your host, Stephanie Pavlantos. I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. I'm also an author and a Bible teacher. In this podcast, we will stretch and maybe even challenge you to look at Scripture from a Hebraic point of view. We want to help you understand Scripture through the lens of the Hebrew language, culture, and history. Thank you for joining us. Hello. We have Rabbi Daryl Weinberg with us. He is from Niagara Falls, and his website is A Light to the Nations. It's a Messianic ministry. Let me just read to you his mission statement, because I think that it ties in so well with what I'm doing, and a lot of Messianic believers like him are doing. So he says, our mission is to help Jewish people recognize that their Messiah has come and to help Gentile believers connect to their Hebraic roots so that God's salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And that verse is from Isaiah 49.6. Welcome. You do have a Messianic synagogue, I guess, up in Canada. At this point, uh, our ministry is online. Um, Okay. We had a congregation in Peterborough, Ontario, up until the end of 2019 when we moved down here. And we believe that we have been called to establish a, uh, a community, a congregation here, but right after we got down was when all the fun and games started around the world. Mm-hmm. So we've been focusing on the online ministry right now uh, here in North America, as well as uh, we have a fairly robust ministry in Kenya as well. Uh, we're working with some pastors over there, but um, we're still looking toward getting that congregation established here. Wonderful. And you've been in the ministry, did I read 20 or 30 years? Over 20. Okay. You do have a book that's coming out. We'll talk more about that. But I do love the title, The Red Mark on God's Forehead. And I'll give you a chance to just explain that a little bit right now. And then we can give a link to it after the podcast. So we'll be able to give a link to where they could pre-order it, right? Yes. Wonderful. And where did you get the title? The Lord gave this image to me many, many years ago. I guess when I first got the inspiration to write the book, um, my ministry has always been, of course, you know, about this pulling the two sides, the Jews and the the Christians, back to that one new man. Mm -hmm. And so you're having to deal with some things. And with the amount of division that we've got, I, I all of a sudden got this image, and I explained this in the introduction, that that's how God works with me sometimes. I'll just start to get a picture of something spiritually. And I got this picture of God sitting on the throne, looking down on earth and just having his hand against his head and going, oi, gvolt, like these people. They're making me nuts. And, you know, you got poor Gabriel just kind of over there in the corner. He's like, I don't know who told him to do this type of thing. And it's just a picture of, I think, God's sometimes frustration and even at times exasperation with us in that he's given us a fairly simple straightforward way of living and we've gone and confused it all and muddled it all up so the the image i got was just god slapping his head and you know trying to trying to work with everybody and sorting all this out and getting them back to the truth and so that was the inspiration for the book and also the front cover 
which I, I thought my artist did a fabulous job of uh, drawing out. Mm-hmm. I saw that cover. That's really cool. What I think for uh, most people, I mean, I certainly have been in the position where I've gotten a little bit of pushback for wanting to bring out the Jewish roots and the Hebraic meanings of scripture. You know, there's a lot of people who are kind of stuck in a section of saying, no, everything that's written in English, you know, or going back to this old English dictionary, that's that's good enough to understand scripture. That's all we need. And and I know even we had a, um, somebody here recently, my husband was excitingly telling him about my podcast and and he just goes, you know, I don't I don't need that. I don't need to hear about all those Jews. I don't I don't hear about all that. And we don't need that. And this this is what it means. This is this is what it you know goes back to King James. It goes back to this goes back to that. And um, and they really miss out on a lot. But then they also get very offended. You know, scripture talks about being a rock of offense. And I, I think that sometimes that's what I think about when when you start talking about the Torah, the law, there's so much division in what it means and how it applies to all people, even as Gentile believers. And and I know that your book, you want to clear up some of those things. You want to put things straight and right for us. So one of the things, if we want to start just talking about the Torah and the word logos, because this is a description of who Yeshua is. So in John 1, it says, uh, in the beginning was the word. And we all know that to Yeshua, the word was God, the word was with God. And then the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And so he is literally the word that took on human form. So, But I don't think we really explore necessarily within Christianity what all that means. Because what word would they have been talking about? Well, the only word that we have... Uh, with regards to God's instruction for us, is the Torah. If you look at the Tanakh, which is the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketubim, the the Old Covenant, the Old Testament as we know it. Uh, And so you have the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, which are the three main divisions. And you have God's instructions to us through the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So those are, there's a little over 600 commandments, Rabbinic Judaism has added a couple, and so it is now generally assumed that there are 613 commandments. Okay. Then you have the historical writings, uh, which fall under the, uh, the wisdom literature, and then you have the prophetic writings. And if you look at all of the prophets, they had one message. It was consistent all the way through. And their message was, Teshuvah, repent, come back to Torah. And then you have the wisdom literature, whether it be the book of Judges or you have Psalms, Proverbs, and it's all about how we do this Torah thing. Proverbs is all about wisdom. Psalms is all about the heart of God. And so if we're going to look at who Yeshua really is, when it says he was the word, then he was the word of Torah, which he gave, by the way, to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was his law. And so all he did when he took on flesh was he lived that out for us because he knew we couldn't. So when we look at what the logos is, the the word, it has to line up with the only word that they had. As a matter of fact, uh, the the apostolic assembly, they turned the world upside down without a New Testament. They only Mm -hmm. had Genesis through Malachi. And yet they were able to spread the gospel all the way around the world. 
And in today, uh, today's uh, milieu, you've got people trying to do it with only the New Testament. We're not getting very far because we don't have the root. We don't have the foundation. So it's really, right. really important right. that we understand the very essence of Yeshua's character is he is Torah. That is his definition of who he is. And the word Torah can also, it can mean about the law, but it can also is about God's teaching. But it also can be about the whole, what we would call the Old Testament. I mean, it can just kind of summarize and be used interchangeably for Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament, correct? Right. And then you talk about Jeremiah 30 and where that's the Messianic covenant and how the Torah then is to be written on our hearts and in our minds. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, Jeremiah 31.31 is in, in all of prophetic writings because it is the promise that there is this going to be this new covenant, or as I explain later on in the book, renewed covenant. And we have several scriptures, Proverbs, Solomon telling us, write the commandments on the tablets of your heart. But see, the problem is, is that our hearts are in rebellion against God, and they're made of stone. And so in Ezekiel 36, you have God promising that Israel, he was going to change their heart of stone to a heart of flesh so that the, uh, the, the commandments could be inscribed. So what the new covenant is, is God took what we couldn't do on our own, which was live perfectly because of sin nature, because of the fall, and he did it himself, and then he transforms our very nature so that we are now able to receive that new covenant. What I say in the book is that if the new covenant is the law written upon our hearts, and then the writer of Hebrews, most likely Apostle Paul, also puts it on our minds. So he, when he's quoting Jeremiah 31, uh, he adds on our minds as well. So it's not just a heart issue, it's also we got to think about it. Going back to Isaiah 118, come let us reason together. So if this new nature is the law written upon our hearts and our minds, when we don't keep those commandments, then we are in contradiction to our very new nature. And I think that's where a lot of the problems that we're seeing within the body of Messiah uh, in the world today is that we're in in a fight against what God made us. That's a really good point, because in your book, you do mention a lot about the sins. I mean, and we're not talking about little sins. We're talking about pretty significant things that are going on in the church with pornography and adultery and living together before marriage and, and all these different things that, you know, that the Torah does talk about and even Jesus talks about. And, and that's the other thing. Um, and I, I just want to bring this up because there's a, you know, there's a lot of talk about that. We don't need the old Testament anymore, but yet if we don't have that, we lose out on the holiness part. Not that it's not in the new Testament, but there's about a lot about holy living from comes from the Torah. The biggest problem in getting rid of the, the Torah and saying that we're not subject to it anymore. And it's a complete misinterpretation of what Paul is saying in Romans 6.14, that I am no longer under the law, I'm under grace. Uh, taken way out of context. And, and the purpose of the entire book is to really use all, take all these scriptures that are being used to prove that we don't have to keep Saturday as the Shabbat, that we don't have to um, you know, keep the Moedim, the festivals. We, are, we can take any festival we want and bring it to God. So what I do is I explore what these different scriptures really say in context. 
basic laws of hermeneutics is you've got to look at things within context, the author, who the audience was, what the context was, where they were, what language. You, you have to incorporate all those things. And far too often what we want to do is we want to pop open the Bible, read something, and then apply it directly to our situation today. And you're not going to be able to do that effectively if you don't go back to what the original intent was because God is the God of the here and now. He is not like, you know, let's say the God of Mormonism that just dropped these tablets, uh, these golden plates or whatever it was. Or if you look at some of the pagan gods, you know, you have these proclamations from on high, but there's no relationship. God is the God of our intimate lives, our person. We, you know, we talk and I really dislike the expression, but we talk about Jesus being our personal Lord and Savior. Um, he's not your personal anything. <laughs> he's the Messiah of the world. But this idea that this personal relationship that we have with him. And so God is, you know, he's, he was dealing with issues that were going on at the time. If you look at how Torah was written. So they go to Mount Sinai, you get the Ten Commandments. And Israel botches it. They, they break everyone um, in the creating of the golden calf and, and what they did with that. So Moses comes down, breaks the Ten Commandments, goes back up, gets the new ten, seven of which are different from the original ten. Um, mm. I don't know if people realize that in Exodus 34. So the, the new tablets that he brings down, seven of the Ten Commandments are different. Um, uh -huh. Because the first ten, the ones that we all you know, have posted on our, our churches and in our Bibles and stuff like that. Um, they were the, the moral perfection that God was requesting of us. When you get the second 10, you start to see practical applications of that. Okay, this is how you're going to walk it out. I gave them to you and you completely messed it up. So now I have to tell you how to do it. And the rest of the Torah that was written in the 40 years of the wanderings is all the same thing. You know, so what you'll see is that throughout the Torah, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, this is, etc., etc., etc. And so what was most likely going on is that there were issues that were cropping up. And we do see that actually laid out clearly that that is what was happening. But issues would pop up and then Moses would go to the tent of the meeting and then God would say, so here's how you're going to deal with that. And so for us to say that we don't need that anymore what we've done is we've cut ourselves off from the root. And when you cut yourself off from the root, then you have no foundation. You're not getting fed properly because where is it that you get the waters of life? It's through the roots. So mm. as believers, if we're not connected to the roots of our faith, which is the Torah, which is Israel being the protos, the prototype, the, the gospels to the Jew first, Paul says, and he uses that word protos, if we're going to eliminate all of that, then where, uh, how are we drawing upon the waters of life? We we can't. And so then what you're doing is you're getting all kinds of other stuff. And it's like, you you know, you take a plant, you cut it off and you drop it into some water. Well, there's a lot of sewage water that I think the body of Messiah is feeding off of today. Mm -hmm. And you will see that by its fruit. It's not just my opinion on it. You will know them by their fruit. And so when I talk about the fact that the church is being ravaged today by divorce and adultery and we're not living holy, it's because we don't even understand what holy is. And if we're going to go, and I, I've had actually just in the past few days a number of people who have kind of pushed back on me on this, same way that you have experienced, 
that what's written upon our hearts, it's like we don't need these definitions anymore. It's just like as long as we've got the Holy Spirit, then everything's fine. But then how is it that we still have to repent according to 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's a constant going back to him because he says elsewhere, he says, if we say that we don't sin, that we make him a liar. And that's talking to believers. So mm-hmm. if we've eliminated the standard by which God judges us, that's very clear within Scripture. You know, the books are open, whether it be the um, the judgment seat of Messiah for the believer in 1 Corinthians 3 or the great white throne of judgment. How are we being judged? Based on our works. And how are those works being evaluated? It's based on the Torah. It's God's definition of love. And so I postulate within the book that according, and I know I'm kind of bouncing all over the place here, but it's important we kind of pull it all together. Matthew twenty-two forty, Yeshua is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So right then and there, he says, my definition of love is Torah. You eliminate Torah, then what happens? Love becomes subjective. And subjective love uh, is not lasting, and it's not very loving because it is self-centered. And ask any couple, ask, ask your husband, is he going to see things the same way you see them? Oh, no. (laughs) And that's Mm -hmm. why we have about a billion and a half marriage books out there within Christianity, because, you know, men are from Mars, women are from me. We look at things entirely differently. And if we have no standard by which to operate on and we continue to operate on, it's not like, okay, well, I need a Torah as the tutor to get me to Messiah. But now that I've got Messiah, I can chuck the Torah away because then you don't even understand who Messiah is after a while. Then we have created the hyper-grace Jesus, the prosperity Jesus, the new age Jesus. Mm-hmm. We've got all these different mm-hmm. you know, interpretations of him when the reality is, is that only God has the authority to define who he is. And if he says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away, then we have to go back to God's definition of who the Messiah is and what his expectations are of us. Right. Oh, that's good. That's really good because, boy, yes, there's so many things I would like to to go uh, take a tangent on with what you just talked about because even the, when you talked about hermeneutics, I mean, all of our pastors, if they go to seminary, they're taught hermeneutics, but yet there are so many interpretations of scripture. And we all have the same rules, so to speak, of hermeneutics. I mean, that's why it's it's there. It's to help and give you a reference on how to translate or interpret scripture. But I heard someone say, and you can tell me what you think of this, but that every scholar has their own worldview and whatever they they think in the way that they see the world and they see maybe even Israel or the way they see the Old Testament, the New Testament, or the Jesus, is he a Jesus of the church or is he the Messiah of of Israel? You know, however they see these things is how they bring their interpretations to scripture. And we have to be careful. It's not just scholars who have a different worldview. It's every single person on the face of this earth has a different lens or filter that we look at things through. Mm -hmm. And so it is oh so important that we go back to the understanding of how God framed it. 
Uh, in chapter three of the book, I talk about Christmas. I, I spend a lot of time speaking about pagan holidays because those are one of the things that really gets God's dander up. I mean, he he has told us very specifically in Torah not to take the ways of the nations and celebrate or worship him with those things. We see mm -hmm. that in Deuteronomy twelve twenty nine. And so I debated a pastor uh, about nine years ago on whether Christians should celebrate Christmas. And he took the for and I took the against position. And most of his argument was based on how Christmas made him feel. And in my argument, and so what I, this is how I laid out the chapter, I asked four questions. Are we to celebrate the Messiah's birthday, especially since it's not specifically uh, told when it was? You know, we mm -hmm. can kind of infer a few things, but it's not told that he was born. On, uh, and so even if we are to keep us to celebrate it, do we do it in the manner in which we do on December 25th? And so I kind of unpack all of that. And then I say, well, even if it isn't, you know, of God, you know, what if that's not what it means to me? So Jeremiah 10 talks about don't take a tree and decorate it. But that's talking about an idol. Well, I don't worship the tree. And I say, well, I don't know how people act around Christmas and getting that tree up. I don't about that. But even if you don't, the foundation from where our customs and practices came from are ever so important in God because there's a spiritual foundation that we bring with it, irrespective of what it means to us. And then the fourth question I ask is, well, won't God sanctify it even if it didn't belong to him to begin with? So if we're looking at things from a me-centered point of view, and this is the biggest problem within Christianity, that there's too much small K kingdom building. It's all about what it means to me. And, you know, I say within the book, it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters yeah. what it means to God because he's the one being worshipped. And we can extrapolate that from our own experiences is that if it's my birthday or if it's Father's Day or any other Hallmark created holiday that we celebrate and go spend money on, the point is, is that if your family is coming to celebrate you and they're doing what they want, who's really being honored, you know? So we've got to get rid of this me-centered Christianity and relationship with God. God is the God of the universe. He's the God of all mankind. And he has not made allowance for us to pick and choose how we want to approach him. He's already laid it out for us. We're all at a different place. I understand that. You know, Acts chapter 15, we see the council in Jerusalem. And they're saying, what are we going to do with all these Gentiles? Because we weren't really anticipating this. What they basically say is start off with these four commands, three of them dealing with food, and then one, of course, sexual immorality. And then it says in the very next verse, and I talk about this, uh, in Acts 15.21, it says, Moses has those in every generation uh, who preach him in the synagogue every, sh every Shabbat. They're going to go to the synagogue. They're going to learn Torah. They'll get the rest of this. So let's give them the starting point. And yet the church has turned around and says, it's not incumbent upon us. Well, then how do you live? Because if you look at the four that James lays out, Sunday worship's not, not in there. So why is it that the church insists on Sunday worship then? That's a tradition. It's not mandated according to what we see as the different path for the Gentiles. There is no separate path for the Gentiles. In chapter 5 of the book, I talk about different rules for Jews and Gentiles. I give approximately 10 to a dozen verses in Torah. It says it's the same law for everybody. Go back and look at it. So we've got to get rid of this that it's all about me and how I feel about it. Uh, when it comes to the worship of God, how you feel about it is entirely irrelevant.
You know, I, I know that may offend some people, but the gospel is offensive to our carnal nature. Because what we have to realize, it's not about us. It's never been about us. It will never be about us. You get to be free, and God won't give a, a rip about what it means to, you're showing up when he says to show up. <laughs> That's really good. That's really wise, um, because you're right. I mean, we are in a me culture, a me generation. You know, it's all about me and what I feel, what I think. And the truth is, is we have a God who loves us, who hates sin, who hates the feelings that people have caused us and the hurt and the defilements that people have put on us. But yet he's still a very holy God. And he doesn't just because we've been a victim in some way, shape or form, which we all have in many ways and some worse than others. But but he's still God and he's still able to heal. He's still able to to fix some of these problems in his way and only the way he can but he still wants us to be obedient. It doesn't minimize our obedience. It doesn't minimize that he's king and that he's ruler and he he's creator of all things. So I know that's not really yeah, where well, you went with that, but that's what makes me, some of those things come to my mind. Well, again, this, this whole victimization mentality that we have, what happened to Romans 8.37 that says we're supposed to be more than overcomers? What happened to, you know, the conquering of, of the grave? I mean, if, if, the, if the foundation of our faith is that Yeshua conquered death, that he rose from the grave, whatever has happened to us, and that's not to minimize what has happened, we've all had trauma, some people to a much greater degree than others, uh, whether it be abuse, whether, I mean, you've uh, people who are victims of satanic ritual abuse and uh, mind control and stuff like that. That's, that's a lot more common than a lot of people would like to, uh, to admit. But nonetheless, when he came out of the grave, he conquered those things too. And if you're going to sit in your victim, I mean, this is what critical race theory is all about. It is the eternal victimization of one over another. And so we have to skew the playing field. We have to constantly berate people for things that they haven't even done. As opposed to, yes, bad things happened, but you know what? Sometimes we just have to get over ourselves and we have to stop focusing on us. God will take us through it. God will heal us. God is the bomb of Gilead. And there is healing within his wings. By his stripes we are healed. Do we really believe that? And that's the question that people have to ask. So whatever your circumstances, God is bigger than your circumstances and able to bring you to wholeness. And when we talk about God being holy, one of the ways that I really like uh, you know, to play on words uh, in English is that he is wholly different from us. See, you know, we, we talk about holy in the context of being uh, moral. That's not what holy means. Holy means separate. And so mm -hmm. God is holy from his creation. He is separate from his creation. God is holy from the world system, which is a Babylonian system. It's Nimrod. It's the, uh, you know, it's the Antichrist system that the entire world runs on. And so you see in the book of Revelation, you see in, in Jeremiah and Isaiah, come out of them. You know, I bring them out. God's taking us out of the world system and he's bringing us to a place where he's going to make us holy as well. 
And holy means sanctified. It means being removed from the world system and the pollution that's in that so that we can be whole in him. But if we're not going to allow that to happen, and the only way that will happen is if we walk in obedience to how he said we are to walk. So in the, the chapter on the shut, uh, I compare Saturday versus Sunday worship and where all this Sunday worship came from. And I talk about that there's a, a fairly new field of study that shows that the body, when they've studied biometric frequencies, that they're actually, you, you've got circadian rhythms, which is the, the 24-hour cycle. So your body ebbs and flows. So for instance, I try not to have coffee before 11 o'clock in the morning because my body is already producing hormones earlier on in the morning to wake me up as it is. And so I'm going to be working against that. So I'm trying to follow my body's rhythms in a 24-hour mm -hmm. cycle. There are also seven-day rhythms that they've now just found out. And what they have discovered is that the body produces uh, the serotonin and all the things that are necessary for rest on Saturday, the seventh day, not the first day of the week. So even nature itself shows us that what God said is something that we should take seriously. And we don't have now the authority or permission to go and say, well, I'm going to make it what I want it to be. And this is where Sunday worship came from, or this is where, uh, you know, I can make it any day of the week that I want, or I do ha I can do these things. I don't have to do these things. It's really all up to me. If you want to be whole and if you want to be delivered and if you want to walk in holiness, it's got to be by his definition and not ours. And that's really good because like I told you, I mean, I, I'm a biologist and I taught anatomy and physiology and and God even put that into each system of our body. There's a system of rest yes. within our very cells. He created it that way for a reason, because rest is important. And we often think that keeping the Sabbath or keeping Shabbat is just going to church. That's how I understood it as a child. It was just going to yeah. church. But there's so much more. It's about resting. It's about resting our minds, resting our bodies, giving ourselves a chance to recover from six days of work, because my husband is one who six days, I mean, he would work seven days a week. If the Lord hadn't said, no, I've given you six. The seventh is mine. Yeah. You keep it, you know? And now I find him like totally asleep on the couch. So for those of you who just fall asleep and rest on the couch, there's nothing wrong with that because that's, you know, for me and for, especially for my husband who works so hard all the time, it's it's what he needs. I mean, he feels better the next day. He feels he feels energized. He feels good. And and um, and that's what his body needs, because that's what God knows he needs. You know, God knew this. And it didn't Jesus say, I mean, the Sabbath is is for us. The Sabbath is it's God, but it's for it's for our bodies. It's for our rest. God showed us by example that he took a rest. Yes. Once we get away from this, it's how I interpret it, then we can maybe start making some progress. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, when we talk about sin in the church, sin is sin, you know, and we'll say all sin is equal. It doesn't matter. Sin is sin. But you actually talk about the three types of sin in the Hebrew language that it defines it three different ways. Can you expand on that a little bit for me? So in the Hebrew, there are three different words for sin, and they all have different nuances. Avon is the first one, and it infers iniquity, uh, guilt, punishment for iniquity. It's a, it's a wrong committed, but 
the motivation isn't necessarily clear, whereas the stronger word pesha is more rebellion. And that's the one that's even used in Isaiah chapter 57, 4, which says that against whom do you jest, against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion and offspring of deceit? And uh, so it's a much stronger, more forceful term. And then you've got the last one, which is chata, which is missing the mark. And so, you know, we tried, but it didn't work out. So the reason why there's three different words for sin within scripture is because it really comes down to motivation. Now, when you get to the Greek, there's one word for sin, and it is hamartia. And it's also missing the mark. So it's like chata. So when we talk about sin, we always talk about, you know, we miss the mark. That's what we're told. But in the Hebrew, there are variations. And you've got a couple of passages of scripture, like in Psalm 32, that uses all three of them. So when we discuss what sin is, we've got to make sure that it's all about the heart. Um, if you look at the sacrifices in uh, the first uh, seven, eight chapters of Leviticus, we see all kinds of sin offering, burnt offering, peace offering, but those are all for unintentional sin. When it comes to intentional sin and outright rebellion, the, the pesha, there is nothing that can be done for that because that shows a condition of the heart. Now, David, in, in Psalm 32, he confesses all three of them. He uses all three. So he has said, yeah, that I, I committed rebellion against you and I knew exactly what I was doing. And it shows that God is still merciful. He'll even cover that. But when it's persistent or when it's a, a you know, a, a condition of uh, that we have as opposed to kind of a, a momentary thing, then there is no sacrifice that's available for that. And I think mm -hmm. that ties back into the, um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being the one unforgivable sin because you deny the work of Messiah when you do that. The Holy Spirit's job is to point mm -hmm. everybody toward Yeshua and saying that your rebellion, your sin, your, your missing the mark um, is going to send you to an eternity without God. And uh, so I'm here to tell you what the solution is. But if we deny that, then there is no hope for us. Hmm. Yes, because I've, I've actually been asked and I've heard many, many people confused by that verse. You know, what is the unforgivable sin? And in the passage that you're referring to, the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of healing through Satan, basically through the devil. And that's an example, too, of taking something out of context, because he's explaining it right then and there, that when you assign the Holy Spirit or Jesus, assign what he's doing as demonic, that is unforgivable. They're not one in the same. I mean, Jesus doesn't work under that power. They're, I had a pastor once say that, you know, we we tend to put like this cosmic battle between Satan and God and the evil and the good kind of equal. There are equal terms and they're fighting against each other, but that couldn't be farther from the truth because it's actually like God is way, way up above us in power. And Satan is just, you know, yes, Satan is more powerful than us, but he is nowhere near the power that God has. There's a lot of people who might think today that the unforgivable sin is voting Democrat, but it's not, our, again, our... Uh... It's very interesting, I think, to understand when you start grasping some of these, and I hate to use the word nuances because there are some things that are subtle and some things that are right out there, very clear, but yet we minimize 
what they mean. And when you were talking about sin in your book, you referred to the Torah as well. And you described the sin in effect to help us understand what it means. We're no longer under the Torah, but at grace, you know, and Paul says that, and we misinterpret that phrase a lot. So can you explain that a little bit? What the, the, the church usually interprets uh, Romans 6.14 is, I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace. They're saying that I am not subject to the law, so I'm not under the law's supervision, that tutor. You go back to Galatians chapter 3. But what they're not understanding is that it is a rabbinic expression that being under the Torah meant being condemned by it. You were convicted by the Torah. And that was the purpose of the Torah, is to show what God's holiness was in our complete and utter inability to keep it ourselves, which is why the very first thing that God does in the garden after the fall was promise the Redeemer, the seed of the woman, because man was, he was now hopeless. And so God had to provide hope. we got to make sure that we're understanding that when look at that verse, I'm no longer under the law, I'm under grace, you're not condemned by the Torah. And he says that um, in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who who are under Messiah Yeshua. Okay, they're mm-hmm. in Messiah Yeshua. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. But if you've got to go back to, you know, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, which is the whole point of that chapter, that, that section of the letter was that now that we're dead to sin, now that we aren't condemned, we shouldn't be living as if we were still in bondage. You know, do not present your your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. You've died to these things. Why are you going back to them? It doesn't say that it's, it doesn't condemn us anymore. We, the, the Torah still condemns us for sinning. If I, as a believer, have an a, a, you know, extramarital affair... Torah still condemns me. But the difference is, is that I now have an advocate where I can go and I can get forgiveness. We saw that with David with Bathsheba. He, <laughs> he, he repented right there in front of Nathan and God says, you will not die. That was pre-cross. Well, how did that happen? Because it's the same. Right. And we often so, think, I'm sorry, we often think that there was no repentance in the days before Jesus. I mean, I remember thinking, and I remember just saying, where's the repentance here? Because when John the Baptist came and said repentance, we think that's where it started, but that, but John the Baptist was doing something very Jewish. Everything in the new covenant, especially the gospel accounts was very Jewish. So the whole point, it was within Israel. It was time for fulfillment of messianic prophecy to come to pass. And he was the one that was preparing the way. It wasn't something entirely new that he was doing. Even baptism, that comes from the Hebrew cleansing ritual, bath the mikvah. They all knew what he was doing. There was nothing, you know, unusual about it. When, when John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, everybody knew what he was talking about. They knew that that was the promised Messiah. That was, you know, the promise Abraham made to Isaac. God himself will send a lamb. So they all knew what was going on, but we've now, because of a whole bunch of different factors, but primarily, and this is the synopsis of the book, 
is that it's most of what we believe today comes from the church fathers who were virulently anti-Semitic. And they started developing theology to pull us away from our Hebraic roots. So you've got a bunch of people in the church today who have no concept whatsoever of what any of these things mean. And I think the church is being robbed because of that today. And we see it again in their fruit. That's right. I, I agree with you because that's the reason for this whole podcast. Because And there's, there's other people doing podcasts just like this because we do want to see the, the coming together, you know, like Ephesians talks about, the coming together of two, two men, two separate groups of people to come together and be one man. And all of that involves getting to know each other, you know, getting to know our, our Jewish roots. Um, we were grafted in. We're the wild olive branch, and they're the, uh, the I forget the name, but they're the ones that are already established. And yes, and so it's just, it's so fascinating, but it's also so convicting. And there's some, not convicting in a bad way, but convicting in that there's more for us to learn and do than just, than just what we think. I would even challenge people to go and study more study, not because we tend to not even nowadays, we don't even take our Bibles to church anymore. You know, we just, if it's written up there at the front on a screen, we believe that's what's written. That's the truth. And, and not that it's not, but you don't, we don't realize how easy it is for somebody to get one thing wrong, misquote one thing and, and build a whole sermon on a wrong principle. And I'm not saying anybody does that on purpose, but it's, it's easy because we, we don't, we, our faith is built so heavily on tradition rather than truth. And we need to get, start getting past. This is just a tradition. This is what we've always learned. This is what we've always been taught. So therefore it must be true. Well, no, take a deeper look in there. Take a, take a deeper look, try to find and um, uncover where's the truth and what could I be learning that isn't necessarily truth, but just tradition. Um, I just think that's so important. And, um, and I, and I appreciate everything that you've brought to the table today, because there's so many more things we could get into, but I wanted to give a, like I said, I just always want to give a really good foundation for our faith and where that faith originated and that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, we call him, Jesus Christ. And I've often heard Jewish people say, you know, is there a Mr. and Mrs. Christ somewhere out there that, you know, and who are they? I mean, they're being facetious, but it's the word Christ comes from the Greek where Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed. And, and that's who he is. He's the, the son of God, the Messiah. And I think there's just so much to learn. I encourage people to get Rabbi Weinberg's book, The Red Mark on God's Forehead. And we will give you some information about that in the notes for this. Uh, thank you so much for being here and teaching us so much. And I know you have so much more to share. And hopefully we can get you on again when it's convenient for you. And we can go deeper into some of these subjects that you've brought up. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. It's always a, uh, a pleasure and a, and a privilege to be able to share God's word. And, you know, um, just this past Shabbat, uh, we, I broadcast online and my message was all about uh, spiritual alignment. God's having me go through this series on different alignments right now. We, in order to be spiritually aligned, we have to um, 
accurately handle or rightly divide the word of truth. And for far too long, Christianity hasn't been doing that. It has been getting sucked into what Paul warns people about in Colossians 2.8 is the traditions of men and the elementary principles of the world. And we're adopting them and putting them into the body. And then, you know, we're wondering why things are, are so sideways now within the church. Why was the church ravaged so much over the past couple of years with COVID and everything else? It's because we don't have a spiritual foundation that gives us the strength to fight back against the enemy's attacks. Because the reality is, is that what we've just gone through is nothing more than the fiery darts that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. But unless we're walking in obedience, you don't have the power, you don't have the dudamus, you don't have the authority, the exousia that God has promised us. So the book really is the way that God has laid it upon my heart. It's a field manual for the remnant in the last days to get back to understanding what a holy life really is. That is so good. Thank you. And I look forward to your book coming out. So... I appreciate it. We'll let you know as soon as it does, and you can go to the redmarkongodsforehead.com. That is the, the book website, and it will be uh, attached, of course, to uh, altnmessianic.com, which is our ministry website. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and recommend it to your friends and family. And don't forget to check out my Bible study, Jewels of Hebrews. That's all for today. See you next time.